Welcome to everybody to Skillman on Sunday morning. How's everybody this morning? Have you had a good week? My week was busy and yesterday uh, uh, got the fire alarm. My, my son called from the, uh, his, uh, his fiance called from the ER. We're, we're on kidney stone watch. Doesn't that just make you groan? Oh my gosh. So uh, the good news is the stone has been rolled away. <laughs> I got message this morning. So uh, the old thing, God is good. And thank goodness for uh, pain meds. Good night. So anyway, we're delighted about that. Uh, we are beginning. Let me find my notes. What can you do with a preacher that doesn't have notes? Here we go. I uh, wanted to begin with some announcements about the next couple of three weeks. You all, did the, uh, you all did the congregational health assessment, and we've got those results back in, and next Sunday morning, uh, I'm going to be sharing the results of the CHA with you. I'll be talking you through the results. We'll have uh, a PowerPoint uh, to share with you at that point in time. And that's gonna be real, real important. Uh, and, and I want everybody to be present for that. Uh, the following week, uh, and probably the week after that, the next two weeks, uh, we'll be spending some time talking about where do we go from here? Talking about how do we use the results of the CHA to make some decisions as a congregation about what direction we're going to be taking. And then we'll be entering into a a church conversation about that, and the elders will be saying more about that to you in the, the next few weeks about that. So I know a lot of folks watch online, uh, a lot of folks watch this after the fact, so I really want to encourage everybody uh, to, to be here next week or to watch it uh, online or watch it after the fact the next couple of weeks uh, to be watching this because this is really uh, going to be important for you all uh, to decide kind of what direction you want to go as a congregation and have some good, good information to do that. And, and that's, that's my role to do with, with you. Sound okay? Yes. Okay, very good, very good. I want to begin this morning. Uh, we started a series on Joseph last week, and I, I want to begin by telling you a story. When I was 18, I went away for my first uh, year at college. I came back at Christmas time, and uh, we had an old retired Navy um, uh, sailor at White Rock Church of Christ who was one of our deacons, Pete Batella, and he was tough as nails and had the, you know, had the tattoos on his arm before that was cool or whatever. And he ran Clampett Paper Company, and you see their, their trucks all over town. Clampett's down in the industrial district, and it's on the railroad track. And he got me a job there for Christmas. And I was working, we would unload these big, huge rolls of white paper, and uh, they'd roll them into this big factory area, and there were really tough working guys down there who'd been there for years and years and years. And they'd hook that big roll of paper up to these machines that would spin it out at high speed and turn them into adding machine rolls. Y'all remember those things? So they made adding machine rolls. And so my job, along with a lot of other guys, the, the guys would run these machines and then the rest of us would sit at the end of these machines that would spit out these adding machine rolls and we'd stack them up and put them into boxes, glue them and ship them out. And I was nothing like the guys there at the factory. I mean, I was 
raised in Lockwood, you know, North Dallas, white kid, very young, very naive, very innocent, going to college, and was totally different from all these working men who were supporting their family on, on minimum wage. There was one other guy that was working there from college, and he was on scholarship, uh, baseball scholarship at a University of Dallas, and he and I got to be friends, and one day, he just asked me, he said casually, well, how much you make in an hour? And I made the mistake of telling him. And he took that information and spread it across the factory. Now, the problem with that was, I was an 18-year-old snotty-nosed kid from North Dallas who turned out was making as much as these factory workers who had been there for 20 and 30 years and were supporting their families off this deal. They were not happy. We had a break area uh, around in the back of the factory that had picnic tables and Dr. Pepper machines and, and it was, I'll never forget it, it was around a corner and you couldn't see when you got back there. And I was back there one day drinking my Coke on break and about 20 or 30 of these guys come back there in mass and sit down on those picnic tables and standing around look at me and they say, how much do you make? And it was the first time at 18 years old that I was confronted with the possibility of just having the tar beat out of me. <laughs> and realizing I might not see my 19th birthday. And I learned real quickly about the threat of violence. And that's, that's what it was. Thankfully, they didn't do that. Thankfully, uh, they just would leave those machines running, spitting out adding machine rolls, and walk and take break and let me do all the work. So they got me back that way. We are talking this morning about a story that has been softened. The story of Joseph and being thrown into the pit and sold into slavery has been sanitized. We've taken it, and when I was in Bible class on, with the flannel graph, we'd move him to the pit and put him in the little pit. Y'all remember that? Or with the sandbox, we'd dig a little hole in the sand and we'd drop the little figure in the sand and kind of cover him up. But the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers out of that pit into slavery is the turning point, it is, it is at the crux of this narrative about how God leads. And in Genesis 37 last week, we looked at, first of all, the family of Joseph, and we discovered that this family is just very complex. There's four wives with sons from four different marriages, and, and Joseph is the favored son, and his brothers hate him. And his father gives him this symbol of his love, which is this robe, which symbolizes, in terms of inheritance, the youngest is going to be given the biggest piece of the inheritance. But the message coming out of all that is the message that God is saying, I want to tell you about how I'm going to lead in this world. And it all begins with this terrible dynamic between Joseph and his brothers that starts in the latter part of 37. We're going to go there and read. If you've got your Bibles, it's 
it is, for those of you into literary things, this is some of the finest writing in all of the Bible. This story is masterfully crafted. And I'm going to begin reading, it's a little bit long, in 37 and verse uh, 17b is, is actually where it starts. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him at the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way back to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is very simply an attack by a group of grown men on a 17-year-old boy. Plain and simple. That's what it is. This is a physical and verbal assault of a group of grown men on a defenseless young boy, period. And these men are not just strangers that walk around to a couple of picnic tables and confront somebody. These were his brothers who fully intended to kill him. And instead of killing him, they decide, oh, we won't do it. We'll just give him to a bunch of slave traders who are going to send him to Egypt. And incidentally, most of the slaves that went to Egypt didn't end up in officials' homes serving them. They entered the mines, and they lasted a very short period of time underground. They were basically saying, we'll let them kill him instead of us kill him. And incidentally, these are guys who have already killed before. If you've got your Bibles, all you've got to do is flip back to chapter 34 and verse 25. And in chapter 34 and verse 25, it's the story. Chapter 34 is this odd story, this unbelievably terrible story about um, Simeon and Levi, two of Joseph's brothers. One of Joseph's sisters, Dinah, goes to a village of the Canaanites and is raped. Reuben and Levi, excuse me, Simeon and Levi hear about this, and through a series of events, they go in there and they wipe out that village. They kill every man, woman, and child, take the plunder, and just, they just, 
and come back to their dad and their dad says, what have you done, you idiots? So when we get to chapter 37, we're not looking at a bunch of guys who are sitting around going, I've never killed before, but maybe we get it up to do it again here. No, we're looking at a group of guys who are fully capable of committing murder because that's a part of their routine. So the fact that Joseph gets out alive is absolutely astounding. Is this making sense? And not only is he confronted with physical violence, the threat of it, he's also confronted with verbal violence. In other words, the things they were saying to him are things he's going to be hearing in his mind for the next 20 years. Some of us have not been exposed to physical violence. We've never been in a fight, but we've been exposed to verbal violence. We've had things said to us that rock around in our head and bounce around between our ears that were said a year ago, five years ago, 50 years ago, and they're still living up there, right? because of the violence of that. How does Joseph answer the problem? These guys that day dove into a pit of violence. They put Joseph in a pit, but he comes out, and they dove into a pit of verbal and physical violence. But he came out. There's an interesting researcher, I'll do this real fast for you, we'll come back and talk about this at length a little bit more, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it out for you just to have this model. There's an interesting researcher, Simon Baron Cohen, and he wanted to discover why people do evil, horrible things. What turns somebody in from a nice person into an astoundingly horrible person? And he studied that. Doesn't that sound like a nice way to make your life? And what he discovered was that Evil is the absence of empathy. Evil is the absence of empathy. Empathy has two components to it. Component number one is recognition. Oh, I see something is wrong here. My son calls me on the phone yesterday from the ER and says, Dad, I'm in the ER. My first response is not, I'm busy right now, or I'm on the other line, I'll call you back. My first response is, what's going on? Everything else shuts down. Recognition. So the first component of empathy is recognition. The second component of empathy is response. Your next response is, you're in the R. What's the response to that? Which one and what's going on? Yeah. You put those together, you've got an empathetic person. And Simon Baron Cohen discovered that we respond on one of six levels. Let me take you through this real quickly because it's going to apply to Joseph and his brothers. Level six, top empathy, are people whose radar are on all the time. They are empathetic all the time. They just exude empathy. The people that I train at Amberton to be therapists, we want to be on level six. You don't want your therapist to be sitting there and you tell them a problem, they say, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. I had a worse session last hour. You need to just gut it up, boy. You want them to be a little empathetic. So level six, it's just on all the time. Joseph is up on a level six, we'll discover. Level five are people who can be empathetic when they hear something that requires it. So they have empathy and they can turn the switch on. And that's a good thing too. 
Level three are people who really like their relationships to be more about activities than about emotion. And so I talk to people all the time that will say, well, I was raised in a family where I knew my dad loved me, but he never what? He never told me. He never said it. And so you've got a next level down, which are people that would rather really focus on, let's fix the car versus let's talk about how I feel about you. The level below that are folks that mask it. Now we're getting into difficulty. There are people that know they're not empathetic, but they figured out an act. They figured out a stick. They figured out a mask that they can use to put up so maybe people will know, I'm just really not a people person. The level below that are people who blunder through life. They go through life just, I call it rubbing the cat hair the opposite direction. They just cause difficulties everywhere they go because they don't get that they're offending other folks. Know anybody like that? Then you drop down to the next level, which is where we get into Joseph's brothers, which is folks that lack an emergency break. They're going to do some things and say some things that are destructive to others. And they, have, they just don't have that emergency break. They can't stop themselves. The final level that Simon Baron Cohen found were people that are, by definition, violent. It's, it's just in the DNA. And those are the folks that my son and daughter go and arrest regularly and put in jail. What's going on here? Those boys, 10 of them, dove into a pit of verbal and physical violence because they lacked empathy. And the story of Joseph is the story of one man who exercises empathy to restore a family. Because when you get all the way to chapter 45 and those brothers are down in Egypt buying food and Joseph recognizes them, he doesn't exact vengeance, he doesn't become jealous, he doesn't just give them food and send them home, which I might have done. I might have just said, I'm not going to attack vengeance, but I'll give you some food, but I don't want to take you to Cracker Barrel and have dinner. What does Joseph do? It says that he recognized, God, this paragraph gets me every time I think about it. It says he recognized them, he returned to his home, and he wailed so loudly that Pharaoh's household heard of it. He loved those, he loves those men. The guys that were going to kill him, he, he loved and he restored through empathy. Does that make sense? That's rough stuff. One came out and ten went in. Let's keep rolling. Let's look at the chapter again. So... Go back to 37. Let's read the second half of this thing. So I'm going to pick up at, mm, let's pick up at verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, 
slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to, confront, to con comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Those boys that day dove in to a pit of family fights. Now, I know your families get along just fine, but my family and the families I work as a marriage shrink have some problems and don't always get along with one another. And that day, these boys dove into a long-term pit of family fights. And notice what's going on here. First of all, when they address their dad, they don't say, we found our brother's robe. They said, we found whose robe? Your son's. No connection there, no distance. They hated him. Number two, notice that they, they, put, together, they put together a cover story. And the cover story, well, they didn't put it together. The father comes up with it and says, a wild animal they dip the, to give him that direction. They dip it in blood, they give it to him to make him think, okay, this is what's done. There's a cover story, there's a cover-up, there's a lie. And they let this old man sit with that lie for years, for years. For years, he sits with that robe. You know he had that robe in a trunk in his tent that he saved forever, that he kept in there, and at night he'd pull that thing out and cry. Why? Because he thought his favorite son had been killed. And notice that they carry this out as a conspiracy because it says in the text clearly how many of his sons and daughters came to him. All of them. Who was in on the secret? Everybody. Everybody's sitting around the dinner table knowing the lie, and they pull that thing off for years. Sounds like the federal government, doesn't it? One of the hardest things I've had to do as a father, my son was involved, my son led, led, tactical, led tactical squads over in Fort Worth for Fort Worth Police Department. And there was, a, there was a crew, a robbery crew working on the south side that was really bad. They were shooting people, they were robbing people, they were going in and they were really hitting Hispanic businesses. And these were bad dudes. And they were trying to get them, and they couldn't get them, trying to get them, they couldn't get them. They got intel one night that they were going to hit this Hispanic bar. And so he had a team waiting for them when they came out. When they went into that Hispanic bar, they had hit so many in the neighborhood that the folks in the bar recognized them and opened up on them. And so you had gunfight at the OK Corral. The bad guys go shooting out a side door into a neighborhood. 
One of the, and they split up. One of the bad guys and Jared and all his guys were in, in pursuit of this thing. And it, it's just, it, it's just, it's, it's a mess. One of the bad guys runs by an unmarked car where there's a detective in there named Garrett Hull. And Garrett had been on SWAT and he's in there, he's armed with a 45, with a nine millimeter, but he doesn't have any body armor. He runs by, of course, he does what cops do. He takes off after the bad guy. The bad guy sees him and starts opening up and they're firing at point blank range at each other in between these little tiny homes uh, where a bullet goes through, you know, you've killed whoever's inside. One of those bullets ricochets off of the brick and hits Garrett in the forehead. Jared pulls up right behind him and then two of the other guys pull up as well. He pulls Garrett out of that, out of that scene with a mortal wound to his forehead back into the streets. And folks, they don't send in, they don't send ambulances into free fire zones, okay? If you're a cop and you're shot in a live zone, your guys have got to get you to the hospital because they're not gonna get you there. You can't bring an ambulance in. So they're pulling, this guy's so big, they're, they're, they're pulling the back seat out of a Crown Vic to get, his, get him in there to get him to John Peter Smith, okay? They do, he does not survive the wound. I get a call, I don't know, about two or three in the morning, Dad, we had a shooting, yeah, I know. He said, I'm okay, I survived, I need you to come over. We get over, I get over there, and he walks me through the story. And when he gets through the story, he goes back into his bedroom and he pulls out the scope that was on his AR that he shouldered and his tactical gloves. And they're just covered in dry blood. And he looks at me and he says, I need you to hold these and take care of these for me because I can't wash him. It would dishonor Garrett. And I, I kept that scope and those gloves in a box in my bedroom for a long, long time until we created an appropriate way to honor him with those. Joseph deals with the destruction in his family that his brothers caused with a simple prescription. Unity. Unity. He just simply said, we are one. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you say, regardless of how many pits you've thrown me into, regardless of all the ugly things you've said to my father, regardless of the conspiracy, regardless of all the stuff that is going on, you are my brothers and we are going to be family, regardless of how stupid you act sometimes. The last pit that those brothers dove into was a pit of self-absorption. 
because they thought everything in there that occurred was all about them. They were so self-absorbed, they could not see what God was doing around them. They couldn't recognize that they were growing up with a boy that was going to be second in command of the world. They missed it because all they could see was themselves. And Joseph responds to that with community. He responds by saying, there's something bigger going on here, and it's called a famine, and the whole world needs a lunch pail, and we're going to fill it. So let's all just put our fights behind us and focus on the larger community, which is the world around us. Heavy stuff. This is a tough chapter. It begins with Joseph being introduced, given a coat of many colors, given a dream, sold into slavery, and brothers in absolute misery with a conspiracy. Yuck. Right? What is the most important word in Genesis chapter 37? Anybody know? Let me show you, and we're through. The most important word is in the last verse. It says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Church, the most important word, the only word in 37 is meanwhile. Meanwhile is the sermon. Meanwhile is the verse. Meanwhile is your takeaway. Meanwhile is our hope. Because the meanwhile is God. Everything before it was man. God is saying, I am in control of this earth. I am in control of this world. I am in control and in power. Don't worry about it. That's the meanwhile. The meanwhile says, God is saying here, I have a purpose here. God's doing four things. God's going to put a boy in power and show us how to use power. God's going to put a family together that's all fractured. God is going to feed a hungry world, and God is going to put the nation of Israel together through these 12 sons. He's on a mission. And the meanwhile says, you guys can do all this drama over here that you do, but I'm going to work my plans regardless of what you're doing. Does that make sense? And the good news about that is he can take the good stuff that Joseph is doing and use that, but he can take all the crazy stuff that these brothers are doing and he uses that as well. So what that says is he can take the crazy stuff that Don does and the effective stuff that Don does and say, meanwhile, I'll just put it in the mix. I love that. Because I don't have to be perfect. 
And what it says to us as a church is, I can take whatever you bring. I can take your strengths, I can take your history, I can take all of the marvelous stuff you are, and I can take all of the pain and the mistakes and the oopses and the start overs, and I can put it together, and my meanwhile is, I am still in power, you are still my people, and we still can find purpose with one another. Does that make sense? It's the meanwhile. And so often in my mind, I live in the first part of the chapter. I live in the drama. I live in the story. I live in the pit of fights and jealousy and resentment and, and, and regret. And God's here in the middle of the meanwhile saying, live in the empathy. Live in the unity. Live in the vision of community. And don't get caught in the pit. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. Because that piece of me wants to jump in that pit because I'm so comfortable there. But he's calling us to live on that highest level of empathy. Because that's what the world needs to see. People that empathize. People that are one. And people that care about the community around them. And I think that's why he made the church. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the meanwhiles of life. We're thankful that you use the things that we do well and the things that we do poorly, and you just take those things and put them all into your mosaic and create through grace a purpose for our lives. We pray that for our families, we pray that for um, our lives, and we pray that for not only this church, but your church worldwide at this time. Please use us to be instruments of unity and empathy and community. We pray these things through your Son. If we can serve you in any way this morning, pray for you in any way, we want to do that. Um, let's stand together and let's be singing.